we found that in most cases where a science-based claim was being made for sort of a preferred policy, uh, that there was rarely an explanation of what exactly that means. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Last week, I spoke with the lovely and compassionate Emily Buckwald of the Griffin Press, who generously offered a copy of the darling book Friends in Fur Coats to the show. And today, I'm happy to announce the winner of the Patreon draw for the book is Tabitha. Your book will be on its way soon, Tabitha, and thanks for all you do. If you'd like to be automatically entered in draws like this and support the show to help us grow, develop transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing, and more, check out patreon.com slash defenderradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash defenderradio. For as little as $1 a month, you can make a world of difference. We've all heard the phrase wildlife management should be science-based. It's spoken loudly by advocates who are opposed to all hunting and trapping. Those who think hunting and trapping is all that stands between humanity and bedlam, and everyone else in between. But is wildlife management in North America actually science-based? That's the question posed by a team of scientists from Raincoast Conservation Foundation, Simon Fraser University, University of Victoria, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Their study, Hallmarks of Science Missing from North American Wildlife Management, published by Science Advances earlier this month, asked this question and came up with some disturbing results. I connected with Dr. Kyle Artell, one of the authors of the study, to get a deeper understanding of what the team found. A five-minute edit of this interview is also available at thefurbears.com, in the iTunes store, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The North American model of wildlife conservation is very much the the sort of base layer of this entire conversation we're about to have. And I think it is the the starting point for the study uh, or the article Hallmarks of Science Missing from North American Wildlife Managements that was published earlier this month. Can we start out with an explanation, maybe not the full history because it is quite lengthy, but what is the North American model of wildlife conservation? So the model of wildlife conservation was first described, um, it was first sort of put together descriptively to describe how wildlife management happens uh, in U.S. states and Canadian provinces. And so sort of the, the development of wildlife management, which is primarily hunt management in both countries, sort of developed in lockstep. Um, and so this model came about to describe in, in, in a bit of an idealized way how uh management happens in both of those jurisdictions. And since since the model was described years ago, um, it's now sort of gone the other way around where many agencies uh, ascribe to that model. So someone initially said, this is how wildlife management ideally operates in Canada and the U.S. And, and in many cases now, uh, we have wildlife agencies that say, yes, this is how we operate. We ascribe to this particular model. And and the model itself has uh, these seven tenets, these seven sort of pillars that hold it up. They talk about sort of public, the wildlife being a public resource and, um, and, and, and stuff along those lines. But pertinent to this particular study uh, is the tenet that science is the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. 
So this idea that science is really important for wildlife policy, although what that specifically means is typically fairly vague. There are some great articles on criticisms of the North American model, which should, I think, be read for anyone who has a general interest in this, because it it sort of highlights, I think, some of the general issues with wildlife management in North America uh, in general, such as the fact that it starts with the assumption that wildlife is an asset to be used. But that is my ethics standpoint. It's not what we're discussing today. Uh, You and your colleagues have identified a gap that... I'll quote from the actual article, uh, the knowledge gap is troubling given the scientific or the science-based justifications for policy decisions commonly offered by agencies, the substantial public investments that support these agencies, and the considerable influence that hunting can have on otherwise self-regulating wildlife populations. In many taxa, adult mortality from hunting exceeds mortality from all other predators combined. And the, the knowledge gap is more or less stated to be... Um, I think it's written, uh, assessing whether assumptions or claims of science-based management are supported. So how do we how do we explain that? What the knowledge gap is regarding the quote-unquote science-based justifications? Right. Okay. So one of the, the knowledge gaps uh, that we were confronting was just, well, what does it mean when people say um, that the, the approach to, to management, the given management is is science-based. What do they even mean by that? I mean, I think science has a lot of weight as a term, and, and uh, I think when the public hears that something has been proven scientifically or shown scientifically, that carries with it a lot of weight. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that, that's reasonable uh, if something has actually undergone sort of the checks and balances of the scientific process. But what it's, what's meant by science-based when we're talking about a management context uh, is, is less clear, and we found that in most cases where a science-based claim was being made for sort of a preferred policy, uh, that there was really an explanation of what exactly that means. So that the term was being used, but what the term meant was lacking. And so what we did to address that first knowledge gap of just, well, what, what the heck does science-based mean in this context? Uh, we went to the literature, we, we went to sort of literature on wildlife management, literature on, on sort of checks and balances in the sciences uh, and whatnot, and we, we pulled together four key hallmarks that one would expect in general if an approach were indeed, um, did indeed have these sort of checks and balances of a scientific approach. So these sort of, regardless of what you're doing, if you're using the the, the scientific term to suggest that your approach has rigor, what checks and balances uh, ought to be expected. And those four that we identified were clear objectives, the use of evidence, uh, transparency, and external scrutiny, so having someone externally sort of checking the work that's being done. Um, so, so identifying those four hallmarks was our first step, saying, okay, well, this this is a reasonable expectation one might have um, in a, in a given case where someone's claiming to have a science-based approach. Um, so we offer this as a sort of a, almost a, a starting ground to have a common language, uh, a common assumption again when these claims are made. The second knowledge gap was just to what extent uh, are these hallmarks actually found in, in North American wildlife management, or Canadian and U.S. wildlife management. Um, in these jurisdictions, that uh, many of which ascribe to this North American model and, and many others in which a scientific basis is just assumed or, or directly asserted 
Uh, and what we found in that particular case was that in many cases, many of these sort of aspects of these hallmarks uh, were lacking. So we looked for 11 different criteria related to these hallmarks, and we found that in about 60% of cases, uh, fewer than half of the criteria that we looked for uh, were, were detected. And that really is alarming uh, when we consider that these are very literally life and death scenarios. And without being alarmist, when we're dealing with populations that are at risk, and I think a good example is a lot of the work you've done on grizzly bear populations, if we forget to carry the two, uh, you know, that takes us from a relatively small pool to endangered pretty quickly. It potentially could. And and this that kind of a question was not within um, the scale of what we were asking. We, we weren't able to detect the actual impact on populations. But certainly if you're managing uh, any either in the absence of data or uh, ignoring inherent uncertainties of the data, it could certainly pose risk. And, and like you alluded to, work that we've done with grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia here uh, found considerable risks because of um, uncertainty not being addressed properly in hunt management. And that could have an impact on populations, but uh, we don't have sufficient data, and, and unfortunately no one has sufficient data in this province to, to credibly assess um, whether uh, sort of the trend and, and how each individual population is doing. Uh, of course, this particular, in British Columbia for that particular example, the hunt has now been um, banned, so it's more of a retrospective question, uh, but I think that it is one with sort of generalizable implications. Uh, I think it's also a very iconic one that we will long remember and will likely come up again in three years when the next election is is coming. Right. Now, one of the things I found interesting in the uh, the results and discussion, and you've got a lovely little chart. I always like your charts. Uh, you have your four hallmarks uh, and just sort of a nice percentage generalized as to where things fall. There are, I'd say, three things that it appears that Canadian provinces, territories, and U.S. states are doing well. Uh, or American states are doing well. Uh, one is estimating realized hunting rates. That's under the evidence category. And then, uh, then under transparency, provide publicly available management information and explain how realized hunting rates are estimated. Why is it that those three items, and, and particularly I'd say estimate realized hunting rates and provide publicly available management information, seem to be things that they are doing well, or not necessarily doing well, but that more states, more jurisdictions are, in fact, providing? Right. Um, well, the one, the uh, providing available management information, um, in general, we tried to set the bar fairly low on most of these criteria. So we wanted fairly straightforward questions that we could ask uh, from the documents that weren't very open to interpretation. This is sort of the justification for the specific criteria that we use. And we would, in each case, we we would set the bar fairly low just to not um, sort of uh, make these criteria just impossible to attain, to make them realistic to attain and to not sort of exaggerate or not um, have yet overstated results in, in cases where, where criteria were missing. So that particular criterion about providing publicly available information was a particularly low bar because that one we uh, were, were simply asking, are there any available publicly available documents online at all. And this could be a website describing the hunt management. It could be uh, a paragraph describing the hunt management. And that is all that it took to get a yes. 
Um, so for that particular one, the only question was in 2014, when uh, when when these scorings were actually done, is there any information available online? Not is it a full management plan or anything like that, but just is anything available online? So yeah, so for that particular, is any information provided? It was a fairly low bar. Um, for the estimating realized hunting rates, I mean that is uh, reassuring that most do estimate realized hunting rates because. This is sort of the fundamental value, this is the fundamental uh, variable or, or measure uh, that's being managed, that, that these agencies are managing hunting on the landscape, and so you would certainly hope that most of them would would make an effort to um, to estimate how much hunting is actually happening as a result of their approaches. So, so it's, that, that is somewhat reassuring uh, for sure that most do it. It's perhaps concerning that some don't provide much evidence of doing it. Um, and it's also worth noting that in all of these cases, we were looking for evidence of each of these criteria existing, full stop. We weren't assessing the quality of them or, or the rigor of them. And so, again, in this particular case, if they said uh, – but if they basically described at all that they do estimate realized hunting rates, um, they got a check mark. And, and so we didn't assess whether the estimates were at all reliable, whether they were at all rigorous or, or whatnot. And so to answer these sort of deeper questions about the quality of the science uh, would require diving deeper into each particular case study. But uh, because we were looking at 667 management systems, that was just beyond the scope of this particular analysis. That might take a while longer, right? Eh? probably to do it at that scale, yeah. Well, and speaking of that, and I think this is sort of the flip side and is alarming, is independent review. And this is something that you learned very, very early. And I remember this from grade eight science. I think in a past conversation, you and I have talked about this, is repeatability, independent review. The, the whole system of science is based on other people checking it. Um, and the numbers for subject management plans uh, uh, to any review and to external review are both alarmingly low. They, they I think the um, uh, uh, they are exposed to external review is below ten percent of um, the management uh, or of the the systems you checked. So, can you? I I don't even know how to ask a question about this. It just it's it's kind of scary. How how do we justify? How do we reconcile the fact that in what should be science-based management, there is virtually no review happening internally or externally? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I mean, in our minds, uh, this is a fundamental requirement of uh, of science. And it's, it's one of the most important, when we're talking about checks and balances, it's one of the most important ones. In, in scientific research, you know, this paper, for example, this particular study had to go through external review, had to go through peer review. And the idea is that peer review is an opportunity for independent folks, so folks who were not authors on it, who are not linked to the authors in any way, um, who are not chosen by the authors, uh, review the work and they test if they, they look to see that the conclusions reached are well supported, that the methods used are appropriate, um, that the data used are appropriate and are shared, that all, all steps in the process are, are transparent and well described. Um, and, and so this is a great approach for identifying errors, uh, having sort of a fresh set of eyes on, on 
a, a given piece of work can help to, to reveal things that the authors might have missed. Uh, and in my own experience, in the publications that I've been part of, scientific studies, without exception, they've improved as a, re as a result of peer review. You know, peer review isn't perfect, and there's a lot of studies that talk about some of the shortcomings of it, but uh, it's, it's sort of one of the best systems we have for providing external binding um, assessment of, of work. And so for something to call itself science-based without having such a critical and crucial component of what we consider, you know, of the checks and balances of science, certainly does raise questions about the, um, the scientific basis. But it's worth pointing out that this is not just a case of bad managers, that in a lot of, you know, we looked across these systems and this seems to be a systemic issue. Uh, and managers themselves, the ones that we've chatted with, the ones that we've met, are good folks who want to do the good thing in many cases, right, who want to do a good job, but might be facing sort of impossible political restrictions or, or financial restrictions. And our hope is that something like this could be helpful for those managers in sort of helping to nudge uh, their agencies forward. And we've actually had some pretty exciting um, feedback from a couple of agencies where, where this is, in fact, they said, oh, this paper is great, and in fact, we're going to use it right now. One particular agency said that they're revising their wildlife management plan moving forward and that they have this in hand, and they've actually scored the new approach that they're using and saw there was a couple gaps and said, okay, well, how are we going to address this moving forward? And so, you know, our, our hopes is that this doesn't come out just as this uh, perhaps somewhat concerning trend across the continent, and that's the end of it, and that we just throw our arms up and say, oh, it's all terrible. We hope that this could be used moving forward in a productive way and that this might uh, provide sort of a common language. This could provide um, an approach forward, again, for managers who, who in many cases really do want to do the best job they can with the limited resources they have. We hope this could be a tool for doing that. Something that I think is important is, and I'll just read the actual statement, uh, we found positive associations between the number of criteria present in a management system and the system pertaining to big game species being independently reviewed and with increasing latitude of jurisdictions within each country. So the way I read that is when we're talking big game species, which are those that are large and hunted for sport and for other reasons, uh, there is more work done. There is more available data. Uh, is that accurate? And if so, or if not, what does it represent? Right. So in terms of those associations, it's worth mentioning as well the association with peer review, uh, which we were just talking about. Uh, that's, that's worth mentioning is that very few cases had peer review or external scrutiny. But in the cases that did have external scrutiny, we found the other hallmarks were present uh, in higher proportions. And, and so for that particular one, it suggests it's correlation. So we're not sure which way the causation goes. Is it just that sort of more scientific, quote-unquote, approaches just happen to have peer review, or is it the other way around, that if you have peer review, it brings about these other hallmarks? And certainly, peer review bringing about these other hallmarks would make sense, given what we were just talking about, that it's a, a mechanism to detect if these other hallmarks are missing. Um, so for that particular one, that, that is worth noting, that although it's been very rare that we detected external review, in the cases where it was present, the other hallmarks were also present in greater quantity. Um, in terms of the game species, yeah, it's a similar interpretation. The idea is that when we looked in management systems for big game, stuff like uh, big ungulate, deer, elk, uh, that those tended to be have um, have more of these other scientific 
criteria associated with them. And one of our sort of hypotheses for this is that uh, you mentioned at the beginning that others have talked about criticisms of the North American model, and one of these criticisms that, that have come up before is that it disproportionately focuses on hunted species. Um, so if you are a hunted, if you're an elk or whatever, that you're a lot more likely to have attention and funding and research to you than if you're a frog. Uh, you know, if you're not, aside from endangered species, but just sort of species that are not listed as endangered, uh, game species get a lot more focus than, than, which is to say hunted species get a lot more focus than non-hunted species. And so we suspect that what might be happening is that with the sort of big game having seeming to get have more of these criteria than smaller game is a similar process where the, the species particularly prized by hunters um, and the species particularly paid for by hunters uh, through through sort of hunting licenses and whatnot um, might receive disproportionate uh, attention from hunt management systems. One of the things I, I want to get to uh, sort of the concluding statement of the study, which I think kind of puts all of this into perspective, but we had briefly talked about this before we started recording, and I do want to bring it up. There is a criticism I have read of this paper uh, that was circulated around and sent to me that claims that some of the data collection was flawed. And you and I took a very quick look into a couple of the specifics, which we won't go into at this point, but more or less saying that um, in one particular section where uh, data for publicly available management information being available, um, that it may be listed as no, but there actually is information currently available. Uh, and we, we discussed that there are a couple of reasons why that may be. And I kind of just want to give that over to you because, again, we don't want to go into the specifics of this because, as you said, there are 667 systems involved. This, this article, the study took years to put together, so it does not do it justice to try in this format to resolve that. But what are the reasons why if someone looking today may see inconsistencies, I would call them, with what the, the data set provided says and what they can look up on Google? Right. So the, uh, the one of the reasons would be that this was done in 2014, and uh, which the paper describes. The data set that the paper draws on was, was from 2014. Uh, and so in some cases, it might be that a lot of these, inf these data were either not available online in 2014 or they uh, have since been updated. And so we've made every effort in the paper to be able to point folks toward the original documents um, that we used. So a lot of the publicly available documents are still available online, and if they've been updated since, folks can still go to the original document we used to see how we did the, the scoring. In some cases, uh, the publicly available document was just a website, and copyright laws unfortunately prohibited us from sharing screenshots of those websites. So when we did all the scoring, we saved these screenshots, and the original intention in the, in the interest of open data was just to put these online uh, completely so that people could see exactly the website that we were looking at. But we found out at the 11th hour that uh, copyright laws actually prohibit that, and so instead we've created this document that 
that points people to what we were looking at. But unfortunately, again, with websites, that might have been updated since. So what, anyways, one of the reasons that, this, that someone might find a pattern like that is that management has simply been updated in the, the four years since the actual assessments happened. And that would be wonderful if that's the case. Of course, we hope that management systems are ever evolving and ever improving. Um, so hopefully that's all that's happening in the particular case um, that you were describing is that, uh, that it, it looks better now than it did four years ago and that if someone were to do this assessment again today, we'd certainly hope that we'd see some improvements um, in the systems and that maybe if someone did the assessment shortly in the future, we might see even better improvements as wildlife managers take um, this work into account. The other reason that might have happened is that we had a score looking across 667 management systems, and so that's every province and territory in Canada, with the exception of Quebec, unfortunately, um, because the score didn't speak French, uh, and then every state in the U.S., and they looked for every hunted species they could find in each of those jurisdictions, so an enormous amount of documents. And it might have been that if maybe there was an obscure website uh, or something along those lines, they simply missed something. And so what we did in that particular for that scenario is that we emailed every management agency um, that we we did these assessments for. We'd, we'd look for their contact information on the website. So if we could find, you know, if we're doing deer management in, uh, in Alberta, we would try to find the deer sort of manager's email address. If we couldn't find that, we would we'd send an email to the management department as a whole. You know, we'd... we'd, we'd if we couldn't find the direct person involved, we would email someone else with that government and say, hey, can you give us the, the contact information, the appropriate contact information. And then once we reached the appropriate person, we would say, hey, we've done this assessment of this management system. And we would provide them the assessment. We'd say, this is how we scored your particular system. Um, this is what we found. These are the documents we used. Have we gotten anything wrong and have we missed anything? And so we gave every agency and every hunt management system the opportunity uh, to show us if you know if we've missed certain information, great, please share it. Please, please point us in the direction of the publicly available documents that we missed. Um, so if you know if in 2014 there was indeed a document that was missed for whatever reason, it was on an obscure website um, or it was yeah sort of not easily found, then then management agencies were given the opportunity to point us in that direction. It's also worth mentioning that an important thing of transparency is for the public to be able to find these these data fairly easily. And so if, if a scorer of ours who is spending months only looking for wildlife management plans, so someone who is sort of getting the knack for sure of, of finding these data couldn't find it readily, um, that would be a bit of a concern as well if the data did in fact exist online in 2014. One of the statements that is very carefully posed, but I think remains very powerful and the statement I will again quote is, our findings suggest that the assumed scientific basis of wildlife management across much of the United States and Canada might warrant reconsideration. That is a very big statement. Uh, as listeners know, as you know, the wildlife model is cited by millions of people as the reason they do things a certain way. And I think you were right. And uh, I've joked before about the magic science wand uh, uh, when we're having policy conversation. People say, well, science, and wave their hands, and it's all okay. But this paper, as well as other criticisms, show some flaws that 
at the micro level may not seem like a big deal, but when you then start to extrapolate and build and build and build, it's it's significant. What would be involved in reconsideration? What does that mean to to yourself and your uh, co-authors? Well, it could mean a bunch of things. Of course, it could mean more assessments. Um... To, to drill down on particular jurisdictions. But I think more broadly, uh, when we hear, especially in controversial cases where we have, whether it's agencies, whether it's politicians, or whether it's just advocates for a particular policy, if we hear, like he said, the science wand being used, this term science being used, um, almost as a blunt instrument to try to force through whatever the preferred policy is. I think in those particular cases, we really warrant reconsideration, uh, where I think if the public is being sold something as, as ostensibly science-based, the public has a certainly has a right to, to question, well, what do you mean by that? What is the actual science involved in this? And importantly, what else is involved in it? So managers have rightly pointed out many a time that, that wildlife management isn't just about science, and it can't be just about science. Agencies need to take into account political realities. They need to take into account funding realities. Uh, they need to take into account sort of what society wants, the ultimate sort of societal goals for the populations. And all these other considerations, of course, come to bear on management decisions. And so one would never expect science to be the only determining factor. And it never could, because science can't tell us what we should do. It can, it can just provide us information on sort of what we can do and what expected outcomes might be. So, so again, in, in cases where we have these um, especially controversial cases where we have folks saying that we're, we're doing this because science, 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 I think it's really important for folks to, to stop and say, well, where does the science begin and end here? What aspect of this decision is sort of supported by the science or is suggested by the science? And importantly, where do these other considerations come into effect? How is economics playing into this? How are our societal values playing into this. And because in a lot of ways, I think that where the societal disagreements lie is not in the science. It's not, in many cases, it's not how many bears are on the landscape. It's should we hunt bears in the first place um, in some jurisdictions. And if all we're doing is arguing about the science, in many ways, the more fundamental issues um, sort of get swept under the rug uh, and and I think lead to some of these loggerheads where, where folks aren't discussing where the true conflict might lie. And again, where politicians maybe aren't fully disclosing the true motivations and, and the true uh, factors driving particular decisions. That's something that you and I talked about uh, well over a year ago now, I think. Uh, the science can't tell you what you should do. And I, I often cite that uh, and quote it because I, I think it's very much something that is not discussed. And uh, for those of us who follow along with political discussions or, uh, you know, unfortunately read internet comments, people say, well, the science says this, and then don't provide a citation. And uh, I see that a lot. And I don't mean to to be rude or, or offensive here, but I see that a lot with uh, government stuff is it's, oh, well, this is what the science says. And you say, okay, show us. And there's there's nothing to show. Uh, I think that really came out when we look again at the, the grizzly bear management reviews that were done both by the Auditor General, uh, some of the questions raised by yourself and Raincoast through studies, uh, even and even the, uh, the review done that the government uh, purchased, which they claimed as a victory, but raised some very significant issues. Uh, you know, it, it does not 
necessarily translate over to yes all is well um i guess when we we consider this that we are saying the science needs to be independent the science needs to be reviewed uh and it needs to it still needs to factor in how i i feel like this is a very difficult conversation to have as i said because people say well science says this therefore that and you are saying that science says this period now let's talk about that is there a a practical way that we can start doing that whether it's me writing blogs and doing podcasts or uh, someone writing comments on policy updates and social media websites or even you know the the folks on the opposite side of the table from me the trappers and hunters saying we want to do more of this or more of that how do we have a conversation where we acknowledge the science sort of as a standalone thing and move on to the rest of the conversation. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's a complex uh, transition. I mean, one of the, the first steps to it, I think is something like this. What we, what we put forward here is um, one particular assessment of management at a, at a large scale, but this general approach could be used elsewhere where we have this sort of a framework of looking for specific hallmarks of science. Um, so one way to think of it is almost a litmus test to see if there is evidence that a particular claim or a particular system is science-based. You know, okay, it's claims for scientific, that this particular approach is scientific. Well, does it have clear objectives? Does it have independent review, uh, uh, external scrutiny? Sorry, independent review and external scrutiny being one of the hallmarks, uh, evidence, and then um, transparency. And the nice thing about this is if you it can help to identify sort of the limits of science in a given system. If you find, for example, that a particular ostensibly science-based claim is lacking in these, uh, then that gives you some some insight into the, the the extent to which the science as a standalone piece is there at all, right? Um, and it also helps you to start to understand where the science does begin and then if you can characterize the science involved. So I think sort of using a framework like this is a litmus test to see where the science begins and ends is one step that can be done um, to, to see well, what is the science actually underpinning this. And the better that you, the better it's understood and the better that that um, that it's communicated where the specific science begins and ends in a given system, it becomes clearer where the other elements necessarily come into effect. Um, so I suggest that, yeah, in, in particular cases with a science-based claim, it would be helpful to go in there and, and just, again, assess it using an approach such as this, see where the science is, characterize it, uh, and then see, well, you know, maybe this decision is in line with the science, maybe it's not, or maybe the specific claim is just not answerable by science, especially if there's sort of these uh, words such as should involved in there, which, you know, natural sciences are not able to... Uh, to address. Again, natural scientists can tell us how the world is one way of telling us how the world works and, and how it might be expected to work in the future, but it can't tell us how it should work. Uh, although sometimes claims, science-based claims sort of try to include these should elements um, that again is just inappropriate. You can get more information on Raincoast Conservation Foundation, this study, and many other fascinating projects at raincoast.org. Thanks to Dr. Artel for sharing his time with me and all of you for checking out the show. iTunes reviews, shares, and likes go a long way in helping Defender Radio grow, and you can directly support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash Defender Radio.
Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>